0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 18 this morning. Acts chapter 18, and while you're doing that, do we have any veterans here uh, in this service today? Any veterans? If you're a veteran, will you stand up? We want to thank you guys for your service. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. As much as we we think about, you know, taking, we probably have a bunch of Bibles in our, you know, in our homes. That said the same thing. We take for granted our freedom, don't we? Oftentimes, and we know that it costs people uh, time away from their families, even costs people their family members for us to be able to enjoy the freedom that we have. And so we don't take that lightly. This 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 weekend as we celebrate Veterans Day, and uh, thank you guys for your service. Um. Acts chapter 18 this morning, and we're looking at verses 9 through 23. It's a part two message we started last week, entitled, Five Keys to Crushing Discouragement. And uh, we will consider verses 9 through 23. Last week, we considered 1 through 8. So stand with me. We're going to read a portion of our text this morning, and then we will dive right in to it. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, God, to draw our hearts to yourself now, Lord. That you would speak to each one of us individually about this thing called discouragement. We all face it in life, Lord. But we know that we have, we can overcome any discouragement that we might find ourselves in if we keep our eyes on Jesus. Lord, will you help us to get our eyes off of the waves of our life and get our eyes on you this morning? Father, for those who are not necessarily struggling with discouragement today, we know that one day we will, so will you give us the tools? that we can put in our toolbox this morning, that when we do face it, that we can overcome it. We thank you for just the intimacy of your word and how it meets us where we are and it speaks into all, all facets of life. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for those who have served our country and for those who have given up family members, uh, you know, for that purpose and the time away from their families and such, these men here and men and women who have served our country uh, and and the veterans. So we ask you, Lord, to bless them. We thank you for them. And uh, we ask you to help us in light of what they stand for, Lord, that we wouldn't take our freedoms for granted, that we would be thankful this, this weekend as we celebrate them. So thank you for that, Lord. We ask you to continue to pe- uh, pray for peace in Israel, Lord, and uh, just that you would continue to have your way in that situation. You know you know what needs to happen, so we just surrender to your will uh, relating to that, but we do pray for the peace of Israel, and we also pray for the things that are going on in our church, Lord, for the various different aspects of starting the school and all the things going on there, and pray for financial provisions, Lord. We pray for um, continued favor in dealing with contractors and city people and architects and such. Lord, we ask you for wisdom, and we just pray for unity in our body. So, Lord, we surrender these things to you. We thank you for who you are. We ask you to speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So if you were with us last week, then you'll know that when Paul came to Corinth, he was a very discouraged brother. Uh, to the point that when he writes to this church in Corinth, he pins these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And if you were with us last week, we broke those words down. You can go back and check it out. But the word weakness there, I want to point out to you, probably means timidity. Paul was timid when he came to Corinth. He was in fear and he was trembling as he came to this place. Due to all the persecution that he had experienced thus far in Macedonia and on his way to Achaia, he has has experienced all kinds of hardships. He had financial hardships and persecutions, uh, primarily from the Jews who, uh, you know, did not like his presentation of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. Not only did did these things discourage him, but then he was Pretty much laughed off of Mars Hill, as it were, the philosophical center of Macedonia there. and he came when he comes to Corinth, things don't get better for him. He enters this city and he sees a level of debauchery like none other. Looking upon the people, he sees drunkenness, sexual immorality, and idolatry. And it takes the little wind that Paul does have in his sails completely out when he comes to the city and he looks upon these people and he thinks, like, oh man, not another one. This is far worse than what I've experienced before. Paul was discouraged spiritually. He was drained emotionally, and he was wore out physically. Hey, Many pastors can relate to the Apostle Paul in this regard. According to uh, Barna, who did some research uh, relating to pastors and the pastorate, he uh, a study p- published in March of 2023 um, said that 40 percent of pastors have considered leaving the ministry in the p- past 12 months. Forty percent of pastors. Barna goes on to comment, he says, the number of pastors who feel burned out, lonely, or unwell is growing. Barna's data paints an ugly picture of the American pastor and his, um, his satisfaction relating to his job. He compares some data from 2015 to 2022, and here's what we find out. In 2015, 72% of pastors told Barna, researchers, that they felt satisfied with their jobs. In 2020, that number dropped to 67%. And in 2022, only 52% of pastors felt uh, very satisfied in their job. That's a 20% decline in seven years in, in people that are in pulpits that don't feel satisfied in their ministry. That they're not, and, and in fact, Barna goes on to say that's not even the, the, the total problem. He said pastors aren't just broadly less happy with their work than they used to be. They may also be less sure of where they're supposed to be. He goes on to demonstrate that so many are questioning their calling. In 2015, 66% of pastors said that they were more confident um, in their calling than when they first started the ministry. But in 2022, that number dropped to 35% of pastors who feel uh, you know, more certain or more confident about their calling than they did when they first stepped into it. Man, you can chalk this up, I think, to discouragement. I think pastors are some of the most discouraged people I know. The statistics say that 70% of pastors fight depression regularly. 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could make a living any other way. Um, It's interesting enough, I came across a stat... I couldn't really figure out if this was legit or not, but it said that 1,500 pastors leave the pulpit or leave ministry every month, 1,500? 1,500 pastors leave the ministry monthly. That seems outrageous to me. And if that is true, how sad is that? 1,500 guys leaving the ministry. No, No doubt many of them leave the ministry because they're burned out or they're just discouraged you'd be surprised at how many pastors are forced to quit their job. It would surprise you that churches do that. Hey, according to um, Duke University, listen to this stat, 85% of students coming out of seminary won't be in ministry in five years. 85% of guys going to Bible college that feel like they're trying to figure out, is God calling me? They will not be in ministry in five years. That is a staggering number. I say all that to say that discouragement in ministry happens a lot. And in fact, I I know it to be true myself. I've considered quitting the ministry at times, particularly early on in my ministry. When I was, you know, I still don't know what I'm doing but I feel fairly comfortable with that now. I just didn't, I didn't, earlier I had, I didn't feel comfortable with not knowing what I'm doing. Now I do, so that changed things. But early on in the ministry and, and you know, at, at times, even up until 2020, listen, at, prior to 2020, our church attendance was dwindling. Our leadership was exhausted. Uh, to be frank, I was super discouraged. I, I was thinking about going to do something else. I wasn't sure that we were even going to make it another year, to be honest. And then COVID hit. And man, that changed everything. You know, you know, COVID is the best thing that's happened at Calvary Chapel Columbia. You know, it, re- it really is. I, I personally would like to shake Gavin Newsom's hand and say, thank you for growing my church the way you have, sir. But <laughs> we, there's, at the Deep South Pastors Conference every year, I tell people, uh, they, you know, they give a one minute update for every pastor in the room. And I stand up and I say, well, I'm here to, once again, I wanna, I wanna thank Gavin Newsom for the continued growth of our church and, you know, <laughs> but, but seriously, it, it is a tough. You know, it can be tough. But after COVID happened, the Lord brought, began to bring people here to Columbia for whatever reason, uh, and you know, not just my church, but lots of churches in this area have been blessed by people who have come here and just encourage them. Do you know when I first moved to Tennessee, um, I met a remnant of people here that were praying for real Christians to move to Middle Tennessee. Why? Because it's cultural Christianity. And they were praying that real Christians would move here and evangelize the South, the Bible Belt. Why? Because there's so many people think they have something that they do not. And so God is faithful to send people, and He might just do it through, uh, you know, this pandemic called COVID. And He has done that in Middle Tennessee and all over the South, to be honest. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting to to see that. But that's not that that's my story. That's not necessarily everybody else's story. There are plenty of churches that closed down at at during 2020, 2021, and in fact. There's a, there's a stat that says in 2019 4,500 Protestant churches shut down, 4,500 churches closed their doors, 3,500 churches started, but 4,500 churches closed their doors. That means there's a differential of a thousand churches that no, you know, and and here's the reality. People don't go to church anymore. A lot of people don't go to church. They, they attend online. And, you know, if you're near a church, you should go to a church. If, you know, if you're watching online, you should be part of the gathering. Doesn't mean you got to do, do it every week or whatever, but you should be part of a body like that you can connect with because we need tangible people in our lives. And, it, it, you know, there, there are, I would like to see what the stats are for 2020 and 2021. My point in bringing all this up is that it takes a lot of perseverance to pastor a church. And not only that, but I'll tell you that it takes a lot of perseverance to be a Christian in these last days. It takes a lot of perseverance. You know, as much as I love to see, you know, it's interesting these stats about pastors, I would love to see the stats on Christians. People who professing Christians who have, you know, left the ministry, so to speak they're not serving in their church anymore they're not doing you know they're not actively engaged in any kind of ministry not evangelizing not doing anything they're just waiting for Jesus to come and it'd be interesting to see what those stats look like I bet you it would surprise you I bet you it would stagger you why because it's a difficult path folks it's a difficult path but it's but it's a path that will produce a, con, a, a just a such a blessing in your life that you couldn't compare to it. Like, it's an incredible thing to be called a Christian. It's a privilege that we have. It's such a blessing to be able to do that, but at the same token, it does not come without cost, does it? It's a difficult path. Jesus said it. The path is narrow and difficult is the way. And yet, it's such a blessing to to be able to stand for the Lord. Uh, you know, when I think about pastors and such, I think about, They have all the personal struggles of everybody else, every other Christian, such as doubt, discouragement, fear of failure, all of those things. then you have the external struggles, such as conflict with staff and church members, financial challenges, meeting the expectations of the board. You know, if teaching the Bible was all that it was to be a pastor, it'd be an easy job. But it's, it's far more than that, you know. It's a calling. It's a calling upon the life of a person, It's not an occupation. People don't choose this. You're chosen to do this. And that's why Spurgeon told his students in in his book, Lectures to My Students, he said, if you can do anything else, do it. If you can um, stay out of the ministry, then stay out of the ministry. Did you know that he was in... uh, Pastoral prevention, that was his, he's like, let me prevent as many pastors as I can from going into ministry. You gotta wonder how many students got up and left after that lecture. They're like, whoa, I'm not coming back. You know why he said that? Because it's a calling. He goes on to say this. If any student in this room could be content being a newspaper editor or a grocer or a a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He's saying don't step into the pulpit because you need a job. It's something you're called to do and if you can do something else and if you can be content in doing something else other than this, then you should do it because you're gonna gonna probably end up quitting if you don't. It's It's a difficult call, but it's such a reward at the same time. It's a sacred undertaking that is not for the faint of heart. And again, it, there'll be much difficulty and it will take fortitude to, stay, to stand your ground and to continue in the calling that God has given you. And that's why Spurgeon said, if you can do anything else, do it. But if you can't, you need to fulfill your ministry. I, I think of Jeremiah. When he faced such opposition from his own people, his own countrymen. And in fact, uh, in, in Jeremiah chapter 20, he gets beat by The priest in the temple. Why? Because he's proclaiming the words that God has given him. God, he's God's prophet. He gets beat by his own people. I know that doesn't surprise us because they also killed Jesus, the Messiah. But, at the, but what I'm saying is that Jeremiah got to a point where he was just like, That's it. I'm tired of this. I'm not going to say another word about what God is telling me and, and then he goes on to and then we go on to here in Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9 If I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot because it's a calling because it's a calling on your life you can't hold back what God's put in the apostle Paul understands this he comes to Corinth. Yeah, he's frustrated. He's discouraged in all of these signs of things, but he understands his call, folks. He's not going to quit. He's not going to give up. He's not going to say, forget these people. He loves people. He's got a call on his life. And the Lord is telling him, you need to stay, stand your ground, and you need to, you know, when you're discouraged, you need to press into me. We know that he says this. We know that that's what he's thinking in his heart. We understand that even in his discouragement, he's going to stay the course. Because he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The very he's writing to the very church that he walks into completely and totally undone, totally discouraged, and he says this to them. In verse 9, chapter 9 verse 16, for if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul understood the call on his life. And that was through much suffering to make the gospel known to the Gentiles. That was his call. That's what he was, that's what was told to him. That's what the Lord told Ananias in Acts chapter nine. He said, I will bring many people into the fold as a result of this man, but through much suffering. It's gonna be a difficult path for him. Paul, like Jeremiah knew that he was called and thus quitting is not an option. If he wants to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, he has to persevere through the hardships and trials. He may be beat down, he may be discouraged, he may be fearful, but that wouldn't stop him from fulfilling the calling that God has on his life. And what we find is the Lord meeting Paul right where he is in this discouraged place and he provides encouragement for him. And you know, the Lord will do that to you too. He is faithful to do that. He meets us where we are. But do you know you have to let him? You have to let him meet you where you are, but he will. No one's gonna ever show up to heaven and go, God, you didn't meet me where you were. You know what he's gonna say? You didn't let me. You didn't let me. You weren't willing you weren't willing to receive my comfort, you weren't willing to receive my encouragement. God is right there with you, and we're going to see that in our passage today. God wants to meet you where you are. He provides five key five keys to crushing discouragement in our text uh, chapter. 18, verses 1 through 23, last week we considered the first two, companionship and a shake-it-off mentality in verses 1 through 8. Today, we pick it up in verse 9 where we find the third key to crushing discouragement, and it's a word from the Lord. Look with me at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul has been encouraged with the companionship of Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, and Silas. He's shaken off the opposition of, and the reviling of the Jews, but he's still not fully over his discouragement. He's still somewhat discouraged. It tells us that there is a, still a level of timidity and fear and trembling in the heart of Paul. When we come to verse 9, he's not over it yet, but God is at work, and God is, you know, he's encouraging in him, and he's helping him through these things, but he's not there yet. So it says, then the Lord said, Paul. And I love that idea that God spoke to Paul. One night in a vision, that was the methodology that he used to speak to him. But God spoke to him. God didn't send a proxy to speak to him. God himself met Paul where he was, and he spoke clearly into this discouraged apostle. And I love that the Lord speaks personally to us in our discouragement. He doesn't just ignore it. He addresses it with us. And I can tell you, I don't think there's a greater way to gain assurance that God is with you and for you than to hear him speak personally to you. And when he speaks to you, there's just something powerful about that. He knows just what to say to put the wind back in your sail. He knows right where you are, and he knows the words you need to hear to encourage you to keep going. For Paul, it was a word of assurance that God had his back in Corinth, Because he was afraid and his fear was keeping him to some degree from openly sharing the gospel. He was still sharing. Some people were coming to Christ and such. But he was sharing reluctantly and conservatively. And the Lord wanted him to be free in sharing the gospel. Not constrained by his concerns relating to how people might receive it or not receive it. This isn't really the way that that God, this isn't what God had in mind when Paul came to Corinth to share the gospel. He didn't want a reluctant servant. He didn't want somebody that was conservative with the only words that can save a person's soul. He wanted somebody that was radical for Jesus, somebody that was unhindered in their walk with him. He needed to get Paul to a place where he could freely share. And it's understandable why Paul felt this way. I mean, you know, he was, everywhere he went, he created a riot. You know, primarily it was the Jews that had a problem with the Apostle Paul and what he said because he was telling them that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And they created a lot of problems for him. He was stoned to death at one point because of them, Uh, You know, he was left for dead, as it were, whether he was dead or not, we don't know, but that was in Lystra. I mean, he experienced trial after trial after trial of just being a responsible servant of the Lord, just telling people about Jesus. Uh, When they, they told him, when he would speak about Jesus being the Messiah, they would consider him a blasphemer and a heretic. What I find comforting here in this passage is that God, seeing the apostle Paul where he is, afraid and silent, doesn't ridicule him. He encourages him he, by proclaiming that Corinth, as bad of a place as it, as it might be, will not be the final resting place for the Apostle Paul. In other words, he must have thought, man, this could be the end of me coming to this town, the way this town is, and the lewdness and the crudeness and the violence and such in this place. This could be the end of me here. I could very well die sharing the gospel in this city. You ever felt like that? I think the Apostle Paul had. I'm sure there are plenty of brothers and sisters in third world countries that are closed off to the gospel that have felt that way very much so. But that didn't stop Paul from doing what he was called to do, but God would give him comforting words first. He gives him four words of comfort relating to his state here. The first thing that we find is he tells him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. God is commanding the apostle Paul to walk by faith. All he's telling him is say, do not be afraid. That phrase in the Greek literally means stop being afraid. He needs to stop being afraid. He needs to choose not to allow fear to stop him from doing what he's doing. You know, we all face fear in some way, shape, or form. But fear should not control you. You should control it. You should be able to overcome your fear. I tell my kids all the time, relating to things that they're dealing with in their lives, you know, um, we try and get to the bottom of why they're feeling the way they're feeling. And you know what? Oftentimes it leads back to fear. It comes back to fear. Hey, listen, you have to overcome that fear or that fear will overcome you. If you don't wrestle through this and you don't make yourself get over this, you will be controlled by this the rest of your life. And I know this for a fact because I've had to battle various different things of fear-based things. And I'm, a, you know, and, I have, and to be honest with you, I put myself in places I'm afraid because I want to overcome that. I don't want fear to be controlling in my life. I don't want it to allow me to, you know, to be hindered by what God might have me to do. And so early on in my life, even before I was a Christian, God just told me, this is so important for you. And I would be a fearful, like even doing this, this would, I, my first public speaking thing was a train wreck, by the way, but uh, when I did it, I was so afraid. I was trembling. I could not stand up in front of people for anything. But you know, God would be so gracious to me that he would use music as a way to get me comfortable in front of people. And he would give me the, the encouragement that I needed to do it. And, and he did that over and over and over again. My point is, if you allow fear if you don't try and overcome your fears, they will overcome you and you will be stuck in those areas. Jesus, God's not given us a spirit of fear, folks. It doesn't mean that you won't face fear. But here's the thing is, at the end of the day is we overcome it by trusting in God and who he says and the things that he says about us. We can trust the Lord. And, and the Lord is telling Paul, don't be afraid. He's commanding him to walk by faith to not allow fear to stop him from sharing the gospel. And, uh, you know, maybe that's a word for somebody here. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Just overcome it. Overcome your fears. Uh, We're commanded by God to share the gospel. And fear will rob us from the blessings of doing uh, the will of God in our lives. There are blessings behind everything that he asks us to do. Secondly, Paul tells, uh, the Lord reminds Paul that I am with you. He encourages him, number one, to just remind him that he's called to a walk of faith, not to walk by sight, but secondly, he reminds him that the presence of God, that God is tangibly with him in every situation, and that should put some courage behind him. He should be encouraged to know that the Lord is with him, because with God, all things are possible, and I'm reminded of what Jesus said to us in the Great Commission in the same way. He said that he'd be with you even to the end of the age. Listen to this. Matthew chapter twenty-eight verses nineteen and twenty. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Listen. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. If you're discouraged uh, this morning, then you need to understand that you are surrounded in the presence of God. Jesus is with you. You're not on this path alone. Whatever that path leads to, whatever that path has you on right now, he is with you on that path. And in fact, he's gone before you. He's gone behind you. He's surrounding you on that path. He's with you. The apostle Paul needed to understand the presence of God, that it was tangible with him in this place of discouragement. And, you know, that should give him some boldness and some encouragement. And it does. Listen to what he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 17 the presence of the power of god in his life listen he said but the lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the gentiles might hear it so that i was rescued from the lion's mouth paul learned the secret of the presence of god in his life everywhere god is omnipresent he is in your life tangibly in every circumstance and situation that you find yourself in. And he delivers you. He protects you. He allows things in our life all for our benefit. You might think like, oh, that's a tough word to to understand. And it is. I understand that. But it doesn't make it any less true. Listen, God is with you. We don't have to fear because God is with us. Thirdly, notice God gives Paul a specific assurance here. He said, no one will attack you. Why do you think God said that to him? Because he's afraid of somebody attacking him, right? He's experienced this over and over and over again. Everywhere he goes, uh, he goes into the synagogue. He ruffles a few people's feathers. The next thing you know, the whole town wants to kill him. Like that's that's his standard procedure for every town that he goes in. Berea must have been a breath of fresh air for him. They didn't want to kill him there, but they, as soon as the Jews came down, they, they pursued him there, didn't they? It's so interesting, but God gives Paul an assurance here that he is safe and secure in his hand. And so are you, Christian. You're safe and secure in the Lord's hand. No one can touch you unless God allows them to. I wonder how many times the Lord has rescued you from the evil intent of man. And because he didn't allow it, it didn't happen. You ever think about that? Like oftentimes we're wondering, we're, we're right in the present going, God, what are you doing in my life right now here and there? What about all the things you can't see? I mean, you sit there and think about, it. I think when we get to heaven and the Lord reveals all that he has done in your life, it is gonna blow your mind how he shielded you, protected you uh, from all of these different things coming at you and how he gave you strength in areas and you, you wondered how you got through it and he will show you exactly how. It was through him. God gives Paul the specific assurance that he has his back that God is going to protect him through this. I want you to understand something, that the enemy is subservient to God. He can't just do whatever he wants. God, the enemy, it's not like this, it's like this. And we have to get that in order. The enemy has no power over you. He, he can do nothing in your life unless God allows him to. And that is illustrated in the book of Job. We know this to be true. God God is our protector, and he's at work in our lives, and whatever he allows, he's doing something through. It was C.S. Lewis who said that um, God puts us in circumstances that cause us to grow. You know, he doesn't just allow circumstances to our life just like, oh, let's see what they do here. You know, no, he actually allows them in your life for one purpose and one purpose alone so you can grow. So you can grow. I was talking to somebody after first service. She was telling me about a friend that, um, you know, was going through some things and stuff. And, and you know, that's, that was the principle that the Lord was showing me in that. It's like, yeah, because the Lord had to put her in this position to show her what she was missing. To show her what she was missing. God puts us in circumstances. He allows circumstances to our life. He doesn't create them all the time, but he allows them at times so that we can grow in him because there are things in your life that you don't know exist. There are dark places in your heart that only come out when you're in certain circumstances and situations. We say we love God, but are we challenging our hardships when you know, we're put in a place and we're like, do I really love him? How do you know unless you're put in a, a place to challenge that? You know, God, I trust you. I trust you when it's on easy street, but in hardship, I'm going, God, what are you doing? I thought you loved me. Do you trust him? Hey, you don't know you trust him until you're forced into a situation to ask yourself that question. Do I trust God? It's so interesting, you know, but, but the idea is that, that God is at work in every circumstance and situation. And In fact, Isaiah pens this for us in Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. The idea of this is that whatever the enemy throws at you, God will, it will cause a backfire on the enemy as a result that the enemy can come at you with all kinds of weaponry and stuff, but God is bigger and he can use what the enemy intends for evil for good. He can do these things. That should comfort us this morning. Nothing the enemy attempts to do can prosper because Jesus Christ has overcome the enemy and the world. Although no one would attack the apostle Paul, uh, he was given that assurance, it didn't mean that it was going to be easy for him in Corinth. Sometimes we think, we walk in this way, and we might not say these things, but this is the way we think. If everything is good and easy in my life, I'm in the middle of the will of God. But if everything's hard and difficult in my life, then it's clearly not God. Wrong. Typically in my life, I'll just tell you, if it's easy and I'm, you know, I'm comfortable and everything, that's not God. And when it's difficult and such, that is God. Because you're going against the grain. You know that, right? I mean, you're, you're, swimming, against, you're swimming up current in this world. And, uh, you know, so, so things can get difficult for you. It doesn't mean that there aren't easy periods in your life. But, man, there's plenty of hardships. But God is at work, and praise God for them, because it makes us stronger in him. Finally, God gives uh, Paul some more encouragement here, and he says, I have many in this city who are my people. Now, some have already come to Christ, uh, according uh, you know, to what we learned last week. But there were many more to come here. It tells us that God is telling the Apostle Paul that there is a gigantic harvest in Corinth. And all he has to do is be a willing laborer to go into the harvest and to reap it. And that is the same for you and I. You know, the Lord has given us that same word in Luke chapter 10, verse two. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. Not only are there many that will get saved in Corinth, but I'm convinced there are many that will get saved in Columbia, Tennessee, and in Murray County, and Pulaski, and Lewisburg, and Lawrenceburg, and Hollenwall, and all these other areas. God has people that need to be saved everywhere. And he's looking for laborers to go into the harvest field. He's already at work behind the scenes, preparing the seeds been scattered. The the limbs are coming up and the fruit is waiting for the harvesters to go in to pick them off. And that is you and I going into the world and sharing the gospel. Like Paul, all we have to do is be faithful laborers and God will will reap a harvest from the Lord because there's many people that will come to know the Lord. And Paul was, to, Paul was to, to be the voice box of God to bring the other sheep, speaking of the Gentiles, into the sheepfold of God. That's what Jesus said in John 10. He said, I have sheep of another sheepfold. He was referring to the Gentiles and then he would, he would grab the apostle Paul on that road to Damascus and he would say, now you go get those other sheep and that would be his primary ministry. He would minister to Jews for sure, but he would be a voice to the Gentiles. He just needs to be faithful in this moment, and God will use him to reach uh, these people in Corinth. Paul was, was encouraged by God with a personal word from the Lord that he had nothing to fear, that he could speak freely because God was with him and that God would protect him and use him mightily for his namesake. And it tells us here that Paul then stayed in Corinth for a year and six months. He stayed there and he ministered to the people there in Corinth for a year and six months. Man, it must have been a blessing to be, to be ministered to by the apostle Paul. Not only was he a scholar in Judaism, but he was also a born-again Christian Christian and a spirit-filled man. And so to be able to connect the dots in those two worlds in this context must have been amazing to hear because they were longing for these promises to be fulfilled. They were waiting for the Messiah to show up. And the Apostle Paul was able to bring these things all together for people. What a blessing that would have been. And uh, while Paul was in Corinth, he would pin two books of the New Testament uh, those letters would be two letters to the church in Thessalonica, first and second Thessalonica. And on his third missionary journey, which we will actually see at the end of our text this morning, that Paul starts his third missionary journey. When he cycles back through, um, he comes back to Corinth, and then he pins the book of Romans again there in Corinth on his third missionary journey. If you read these three books... You can see the you can see the imagery that he brings in from Corinth into these letters because he's there writing, and I just have to imagine when Paul, when we think of uh, Romans chapter one verses eighteen and on, and it talking about the depravity of man and the fact that you know in the in man's free will how man is chosen uh, to worship idols and to give themselves over to each other in in perverse ways and such, you know that Paul wasn't. Uh, just coming up with that in his mind that he was just simply looking out the window in Corinth and he was just writing down what he was seeing. You can get that kind of understanding as you look at uh, these books and see um, some of the inferences of um, what he's he's describing, knowing that he was in Corinth writing these things. This brings us to our fourth key of crushing discouragements, which is found in unexpected sightings. Check Check verse 12 out with me. But when Galileo... Uh, Was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made an attack, made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have had reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So apparently, the apostle Paul was making some headway with the gospel in Corinth, uh, so much so that the Jews made a united attack on Paul. It's so interesting how um, Christianity would unify Judaism. What do I mean? Well, there were sects within Judaism. There was the Pharisees, the Sadducees. There was the, um, the Essenes. There was, uh, you know, th- these rebels also. Um, you know, so you had all these four really primary sects of Judaism. And it's so interesting that when Jesus stepped on the scene, he unified them together and they came and united attack against him. And it, he ended up on a cross. You know, it's the same thing here where there's a unification of Judaism. They let their, uh, their differences aside, and they unified for the primary purpose of snuffing out Christianity. And the enemy's been doing that ever since. At the birth of, at the birth of Christianity, uh, there's been a unification against, where enemies would come and gather together to unify against Christianity, and that's gone on and on and on, and that will be Uh, Just like this, until Christ comes back. That's the way it will be. There's a unification in the demonic realm to bring enemies together to stand against Jesus. And that's the way it will be. Well, the Apostle Paul was uh, feeling this, uh, you know, there in Corinth. And these united Jews, the only way that they can stop Christianity at this point is they have to make a case. Listen to this carefully. That Christianity is not just a sect of Judaism; it's separate, and that's what they're trying to do. Why is that important? Because remember, several weeks back, I talked about how in Rome that that religion was controlled. You couldn't just start a religion. You're like, "Hey, I'm now a Jehovah Witness, and you know, I'd like to tell you about Jesus, who isn't God, and stuff, stuff like that." You know, uh, you couldn't do that. You couldn't just start some religion. Uh, you know, you had to have approval through Rome in order to publicly worship in that way. Well, the issue with Christianity was that they, that Rome Christianity was allowed by Rome because they thought it was just a part of Judaism, just another little sect. Like, their belief systems were the same, pretty much. And they're talking about the same God and all of that kind of stuff, and a promised Messiah, and these guys are saying he came, and <clears throat> and... Some aren't and such. So we know this to be the case because earlier on in chapter 18, remember when Aquila and Priscilla were kicked out of Rome, it was because there was an uprise of Christians and Jews battling against each other. And Claudius just said, all Jews leave. What was he? Why did he say that? Because he thought Judaism and Christianity were the same sex. So he said, all of you guys get out of here. I don't want to deal with this. You leave. The Jews here in Corinth, this is a pivotal moment in Christianity, I, I can't stress enough how much this moment right here matters. Because if, if Galio, you know, he rules against Christianity that it's a separate sect, then, it's, it, then now all of a sudden, anybody who speaks about Jesus is now under the empire and the persecution of the empire of Rome and not just the Jews. Do you know what that would do to evangelism? In every town in the Roman Empire from moving forward, every governor would see it that way. And now evangelism would be a major problem. It would be very difficult to go and freely share the gospel. Paul couldn't just walk into a synagogue and tell them Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That wouldn't be able to happen. Christianity could have changed severely. The rest of the book of Acts could have changed severely based on how Galileo sees this. So these Jews, they bring Paul to the tribunal, which is literally this, this sort of stone uh, platform that the proconsul or the magistrate, the judge would stand upon and he would rule over the, you know, it was like an open court system in the marketplace and they would rule over the various different things in the the culture, things that people had against each other or criminal acts and, you know, civil acts and all of these kinds of things. You wouldn't schedule a time with the, uh, you know, the court system and we'll see you three months later. You would just show up to the marketplace and say, this is the problem and they would deal with your problem right then and there. Notice it says here when they brought him to the tribunal, which by the way, that word, you can circle it and in your Bible, you can write bima. That's what it means, tribunal, the bima seat. It's the judgment seat. That's where judgment would come down. The proconsul of this time is Gallio, who was the brother of Seneca, who was the um, tutor and a famed Roman philosopher and the tutor of uh, Nero. He describes his brother as somebody who was an intelligent person who hated flattery and was blessed to be an unaffectedly pleasant personality. He was kind of a nice guy, it sounds like. I mean, uh, according to his brother, anyway. And and so they come to him at the the judgment place and they say, hey, uh, this guy right here is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And it's so interesting that um, it's, just imagine this in your mind. Paul, understanding the pivotal moment here, like if if Galileo rules against him, he's in big trouble. He goes to say something, and it's like all of a sudden out of nowhere, Galileo just begins to speak. Well, I don't see it that way, guys. I think you're all the same. And at the end of the day, it sounds to me like you guys have a personal problem. You need to work out, so go away. That's basically what he says. He said... I know you're trying to make this a bigger matter than it is, but I think it's just infighting within your own religion, is what he's saying. This is the understanding of this. And so, in other words, Paul didn't have to make a defense for himself, the Lord is his defender. The Lord steps up in this situation. This wasn't about Paul, this was about Christianity, and God would step into this situation and he would take care of it by way of the proconsul, Gallio. This was an unexpected sighting. Paul didn't think this guy was gonna side with him. He thought he was gonna have to make his own defense up and yet the Lord showed up in this moment and the Lord defends Christianity. I don't know if you know this, but it's not your job to defend Christianity. God does that. That's his job. Uh, We're simple voice boxes. We have one message, it's the gospel. And we go out and tell people who are lost that they need Jesus, but God defends himself. We don't have to be a defender of God. I mean, in fact, if you look around, Paul says in Romans chapter one, just look around, you can see that he exists and people have to contend with that. My words are meaningless at that point. We don't have to defend God is what I'm saying. We're free to just simply deliver a message of hope, the gospel that God wants to be reconciled to mankind and so he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and rise again from the dead. Praise God for the message. That's all we're called to do. Paul doesn't have to make a defense for himself, and neither do you. God will handle these things. And so it's interesting what happens next is that uh, Galileo says, you guys get out of here. I'm not dealing with this. Dude, they take the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, and they start beating him in front of, the, in front of the, uh, the tribunal there. What does this guy have to do with Christianity? He's the ruler of the synagogue. It's like, you should have took care of this guy in there, and they just give him a beatdown right there in front of the tribunal, and uh, what, what's interesting about it is how this backfires on the enemy. Remember, Paul led the ruler of the synagogue to Christ, Crispus, earlier in the chapter when he moved over to to the house church and it was right next door to the synagogue and he came to Christ. They replaced him with this guy Sosthenes. Well, guess what? When Sosthenes is getting a beat down, he's thinking about Paul's gospel that he's been preaching. Do you know what? He gets saved. Probably not in that moment. I'm just, you know, but I'm thinking like that moment had a lot to do with him considering the gospel and what was said. Why would they beat me Could you imagine? We're on the same team and you're beating me, and I'm just the simple representative of the synagogue here. Well, somehow he came to Christ and he apparently travels with the apostle Paul to Ephesus. And we know this because Paul mentions him in his letter written from Ephesus to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Isn't that awesome? how God would do that? You might think like, man, that was a horrible circumstance for him to be, but it came, it brought him to Christ, didn't it? It brought him to Christ. And I, I promise you that any circumstance you would have to endure to come to Christ is worth it. It's definitely worth it. This guy uh, came to Christ and he goes on to travel with Paul and become a, a servant of the Lord. We don't know when it ends up happening to him, but But thank God for Galileo and his unexpected sighting with the apostle Paul here. This leads us to our final key of crushing discouragement, which is found in serving others. Look at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And at Shantria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews when they asked him to stay a longer period, he declined, but on leave but on taking leave of them, he said, "I will return to you if God wills and he set sail from Ephesus because uh, you know of the favorable ruling of Gallio from uh, from the tribunal, Paul stayed in Corinth longer he was intending to leave, but it says he stayed many days longer in Corinth. Paul loved to serve the people of Corinth. He loved to to bring people into the body of Christ. He loved to serve people that were already in the body. Uh, He just loved people in general. He wanted to be around people and he wanted to be a vessel for the Lord. And he found great encouragement in serving others. You ever notice how that works? How when you just put your hand to the plow in some area and you just begin to serve people, how much better, you're probably more blessed than they are when you serve people. You know how that works? It's just like so amazing how you get to serve someone else. You get to be used by God in somebody else's life. There is no no greater encouragement to me then be able to be a vessel for the Lord and how I get the opportunity to serve other people. It's a great blessing. Paul was like that. But all good things must come to an end and so uh, Paul is going to end his European vacation now and he's going to head back home and although he has experienced a ton of hardship, he's, he's experienced a ton of discouragement in Macedonia and Achaia, he is leaving a very encouraged man. God has done great work through him Uh, You know, and and so Luke goes on to tell us that Paul took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. He was gonna go back home, Syria of Antioch. He was gonna go, he would come to Caesarea, we will read about. And then, uh, you know, he will uh, do some things there. He took Priscilla and Aquila with him and they went to Chancherea first and it tells us that Paul got a haircut. You might think like, whoa, that's probably not super important information that he got a haircut. Did you know I got a haircut yesterday, by the way? Yeah, You know what I mean? So, um, but but he got a haircut on for a specific reason. He got a haircut because he was under a vow. What vow would that might be? It was a Nazarite vow that Paul was under during this time. A Nazarite vow is just a a special pledge of separation or devotion to god uh, no you don't have there was no obligation to take this vow. it was something that you just set yourself up you know before the lord it 's sort of like fasting for the Christian you know we there's no obligation you, you're not you don't have to do this you get to do it, and there's great benefit to doing it, but you know it 's not going to keep you out of heaven. You know, uh, Jesus said, when you fast, it's something that we should do, but there's no command of how much we should do it or whatever. You can do it however you want to. It's kind of the same idea. He could, anybody could separate themselves under the Lord under a Nazarite vow, which would mean that you would abstain from drinking uh, wine or e- even eating grapes or anything like that. You wouldn't cut your hair and you wouldn't defile yourself in the presence of a corpse. And that vow would last for 30 days, Typically. Typically, people would, it was a m- one-month process. I'm gonna set myself up, uh, you know, set myself aside for the Lord for this 30-day period. There were people that had a lifelong Nazarite vow upon their life. Samson was one of them. Samuel was one of them. And John the Baptist was the other. Three guys in the Bible that had were under the Nazarite vow for life. Paul, after the 30 days of completion happened to be in Chancherea. And so what would happen at the end of your 30 days is you would cut your hair. And that would, you would need to then take that hair and present it before the priest in Jerusalem in Jerusalem only in the temple. And you would bring the hair to him and then he would there would be a completion of your vow to God and you were set free. The problem is Paul's not in Jerusalem. So during this day, Time period. They had a provision made for people who weren't in Jerusalem when they ended their vow, and they just made this up, by the way. It was just something like, well, if guys are out of town, maybe we should give them some grace, you know. So there was a little grace in Judaism, just so you know. Uh, they they gave 30 days extra. To get from, from the completion of your Nazarite vow to get that hair to Jerusalem. So Paul is in frantic. He's got a ziploc bag of hair, and he's got to get to Jerusalem so he can complete his vow. It tells us after he got his hair cut, then uh, he went to, he came to Ephesus and he left Priscilla and Aquila there. It's interesting to watch what God does through these people. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla were. The ones that when Paul first got to Corinth, God, God had them li- uh, you know, connect and he stayed with them and he worked with them and, <clears throat> and the Lord would use them mightily. When he brings them to Ephesus, do you know what they do when they get there? They, they plant a church in a house that they buy or that they owned or something. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house. So they leave Corinth where they're using all of their resources for God in Corinth to be a blessing to the people. They move to Ephesus. They then again use all their resources to be a blessing to the people of God. Guess what? They move from Ephesus to Rome. And guess what they do? They plant a church in their house. Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. All the churches of the Gentiles. They were such a blessing to the body of Christ, these two. This husband-wife team, uh, they were used, they were servants of the Lord and they understood their resources belonged to God and they used their resources wherever they went to be a blessing to the body of Christ. How cool is that? Man, I wanna be known like that, like a Priscilla, Aquila. I don't wanna be a Priscilla, but I'd rather be an Aquila, but in this culture, you know. Uh, but uh, so at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a result of somebody who understands their position before the Lord, And saying, all that I have is yours, God. How do you want to use these things? They're yours. Do what you want, Lord. I just want to be a vessel for you. I want to serve your people. While Aquila and Priscilla plant their home and such there in Ephesus. Paul goes into the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews and he's getting some traction with them. They're, in, they, they're kind of tracking with him a little bit on this Messiah thing and so they ask him, hey, will you stay a little bit longer and explain this to us? But he declines here. He declines. He says, I can't do that. I gotta get this hair to Jerusalem right away because I'm under a Nazarite vow, you know, kind of thing. And uh, so he can't do it. There's something interesting I find in this though. And it's that the Apostle Paul understands that the entirety of the gospel and their, uh, their salvation is not resting on his shoulders. He can decline this situation because God has him going to do something else. And do you know it's okay to do that? If the Lord has you to do something else, you're not to divert and do what you think is best. You follow through with what he has in your life and you don't worry about those things. I mean, I'm sure he prayed for them and all of those kinds of things, but you know, other people's salvation isn't resting on your shoulders, thank God. You can take that burden off of your shoulders. You're called to be faithful, to go share and to love people where they are and to bring the gospel to, the don't, to, to those who need it and such and maybe even to remind those who are saved of, of the gospel. But your ability to communicate and to sway people and all of that stuff is not, you're not responsible for their salvation. God is. And the apostle Paul could decline this knowing that God would take care of this there was Aquila, there was Priscilla, there was other people in their midst that could handle these things. And he tells them, well, if the Lord wills, I'll come back, and the Lord would will that he comes back on his third missionary journey. Look at verse 22. When, they, when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. Then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Uh, when Paul landed in Caesarea, it tells us here that he immediately went up. Where did he go up to? Do you know in the Bible, when you're speaking about going up, it's always a reference to Jerusalem. Always a reference to Jerusalem. Why? Because the geographical location of Jerusalem, elevation-wise, was higher. And so you're always going up. When you, when you read the Psalms, it's always talking about going up to Jerusalem. It means you're ascending up into Jerusalem. All through the Old Testament, it reads like that. So the apostle Paul gets to Caesarea and he goes up to Jerusalem. He got, he got to get that hair there. So he gets it to the temple there. It's delivered. He's released from his vow. He's completed his vow. He did what he, what he vowed to do and you should always do what you vow to do. Jesus said, hey, don't take oaths, but if you take them, you better keep them. You should keep your oaths before the Lord, those promises you make to God. If you will just save me, I'll never do this again. Be careful of what you say. You're accountable to those things. But Paul goes up. He takes care of his vow situation. Then he greets the church there in Jerusalem. And he's the brothers, James, and all of these fellas there. Uh, And then it tells us, then he went down again. He uh, descended down to Antioch, and it says that he spent some time there, uh, you know, just ministering to people. He loved to be with the people of God, and he was ministering to people. And then it says that he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Do you know what that means? He started his third missionary journey. That's what he did. He just made a loop, came back to Antioch, and he started right back up through. Um, Galatia and Phrygia, and then he would just continue to go all the way up, and he'll go back to Macedonia, and he'll circle back around. You know, he didn't didn't just rest on his laurels. The apostle Paul was about the father's business, and he didn't sit back. And in other words, he didn't just put it in neutral when he got home. He wasn't just going to wait for Jesus to show up You know, in the second coming, he knew that he had a purpose in his life and his purpose in his life was to go out and tell people about Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. He never rested. He didn't stay, you know, back home and just kind of kick back. Do you know what happens when you put yourself in neutral spiritually, right? That's when you fall. You set yourselves up to fail when you put yourself in neutral. Don't allow yourself to go in neutral spiritually. Uh, I, I think of David who you know, God uses mightily in war and such and, the, and he topples all these enemies. He comes back home, he puts it in neutral and then he ends up committing adultery with someone and kills her husband. That's what happens when you put it in neutral spiritually. Do not allow yourself to go in neutral spiritually. Be about the father's business. The apostle Paul, he stood, you know, although he got discouraged at times, He stayed the course. And yeah, he was probably weary at times, but he stayed the course. He understood his life sacrifice was to Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have a limited amount of time here. And I want to maximize that time for Christ. I want to do all that I can to bring glory to his name. I want to take as many people to heaven with me as I can, Lord. So use me. Here we find a guy that I think we can all relate to. He, he walks into this city totally discouraged and he's looking around and he goes, I don't see how God could save a single soul in this place because that's how debaucherous it is. And yet the Lord just begins to minister to him and encourage him and build him up. And by the time he leaves, he's ready for another cycle. If you're discouraged, the right place to the right thing to do is to press into the Lord, not pull back from him. Because when you pull back from him, it's essentially you're putting yourself in neutral and you can just expect more failure. You can expect yourself to slip in the Lord. If we're not progressing forward, guess what we're doing? We're sliding backward. Progress in the Lord. Be honest with him. If you're discouraged, tell him. He loves you. He he wants to encourage you this morning. And he will do that with whatever methodology he decides. For the apostle Paul, it was a vision from God. He gave him a vision. For you, it might just be you reading the word of God and God just speaking to you through his word. Could be that he brings somebody else alongside you and just encourages you to walk with you. It could be that the Holy Spirit just speaks something direct to you. But here's what I know is God will meet you where you are. He will not leave you where you are. And he has a special, a special um, love for those who are brokenhearted and uh, contrite in spirit. He tells us in Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, David speaking, the, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God is an encourager to his children. And he wants to encourage you. If you're not discouraged today, then walk in encouragement and continue on, but remind yourself of this, because you may be one day. Just remember, God is the encourager. He will build you up. Amen? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.